I would tell you, I don't think anyone thinks there's anything good about the pandemic, you know, nothing at all. But if there's one thing that changed with medicine uh, about the pandemic that I think was good and is here to stay, that is the widespread acceptance of virtual care. And I think that that marrying some technology like point of care technology with everything that we can do with virtual care these days really can help uh, patients in both of those situations. Welcome to The Core, a podcast series brought to you by Core Vista Health, pioneering digital health to transform the way cardiovascular diseases are diagnosed. Please welcome today's host, Scott Berger, CoreVista's Executive Vice President and Chief Commercial Officer. In this episode, we continue to discuss the shortcomings of diagnosing pulmonary hypertension earlier in the disease progression with Dr. Valerie McLaughlin from the University of Michigan. Most importantly, we focus on the patient and the need to improve the diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension earlier and more efficiently. Dr. McLaughlin is the Kim A. Eagle, MD, Endowed Professor of Cardiovascular Medicine, Associate Chief Clinical Officer for Cardiovascular Services of the UMMG, and Director of the Pulmonary Hypertension Program at the University of Michigan. Welcome back to the core, Dr. McLaughlin. I know that that as a thought leader in pulmonary hypertension, a lot a lot of companies come to you, and you've worked on a lot of things that I'm sure excite you. What anything new that you're that you're working on, either in clinical studies or or new technologies that have come out that are, that really excite you right now? Yeah, you know, Scott, I've been so privileged in my career. It started with Stuart getting me into this more than 20 years ago, and over the past 25 years or so, we've seen more than a dozen medications FDA approved for this, and I've gotten a chance to work on most of these medications. So it's been really exciting. Uh, I think the next phase that we're coming to in the next several years is a whole different group of medications. Most of the medications that we have now work primarily by trying to relax those blood vessels to open them up and reduce the resistance and improve the blood flow through them. But there are some novel medications undergoing clinical trials right now, which may have more what we call anti-proliferative effects. They may reduce the growth of those cells that cause that higher resistance. And there's several of them that work via different mechanisms that are currently undergoing clinical trials. So I think the next several years are going to bring a, a lot of study results, and hopefully most of them will show improvements in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. The opportunity to continue to improve these patients' lives. Well, uh, you know, it's it's really critically needed. I, you know, certainly have some patients who are doing well. I saw a patient today that I first met 20 years ago, and he's still doing well. You know, it's really fulfilling to see that. But on the other hand, we still lose too many patients to this disease. We still lose, you know, somewhere in the range of five to eight percent per year succumb to this disease. That must be hard. It's absolutely hard. So we need to do better. That's why we're all here. We're hope, hoping to make a difference in, in some way in, in people's lives, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. What, what are your thoughts about pharma and, and AI medical technologies working together? 
Yeah, I mean, hey, it's 2022. Why not use all the tools at our disposal, right? So um, AI is starting to come into medicine. I think there's a, a you know, the probably imaging is the area that we have seen it the most so far. And there's some examples of AI assisted imaging that improve accuracy, improve throughput. You know, so I, I do think that it's starting to come into its own. We, we've talked quite a bit about pulmonary hypertension and how it affects younger women. What do you see of the impact of quality of life with pulmonary hypertension with, with these young women? You know, Scott, I, I can't tell you how many times uh, I, I see these patients. And, you know, yes, it, it, it's primarily younger women. You know, as we learn more about pulmonary hypertension, we're also diagnosing it more in people who are a little bit older. You know, some men, it's still more women predominant. But, you know, we we have young women with children come into the office and all they want to do is be able to take care of their kids and be an active mom and um, it, and it, it's devastating to, to them when they can't. And so really trying to get these patients back to, I mean, I don't want to say a normal quality of life. Some of them don't get back to absolutely normal, but a functional new normal, it maybe is a better way to describe this, to keep them active, to have them enjoy their family, be able to continue to work. Uh, these are all goals that, that we and the patients have. It's so important, man. It's so important. What advice do you have with for patients that uh, have a family history of pulmonary hypertension? So, Scott, that's a really great question. We haven't talked about the different causes of pulmonary arterial hypertension in any detail. I've kind of mentioned scleroderma because that is the association that is most appropriate for screening, but. We have identified over the, the past you know, many years a number of different genes that can cause pulmonary arterial hypertension. We refer to this as heritable pulmonary arterial hypertension. And we've made really fantastic advancements in identifying genes, in genetic counseling, in and explaining to patients and their family members the options of being tested so that the gene can be identified. And the genes, most of the genes, there are many, by the way, there are many genes that can be associated with heritable pulmonary arterial hypertension. But the most common one, a mutation of the BMPR2 receptor, has some interesting genetic characteristics. It has what we call incomplete penetrance, which means that, that not everyone who has the gene develops the disease in the range of about 20% do. Uh, and something else that we call genetic anticipation, which means with each generation that that gene is passed down, the disease happens earlier in age, at younger ages, and it is more severe. So certainly a patient who's identified as having a genetic defect, there is the opportunity for their first degree relatives to get screened. And if they have the gene to be monitored more carefully for the development of pulmonary arterial hypertension. We, we talked a little bit about the delay in diagnosing this. What is being done currently to try to raise the awareness? Uh, what are societies doing to try to raise the awareness of pulmonary hypertension? What, what, uh, as as a company that that believes in in helping to try to diagnose pulmonary hypertension earlier what 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 can people do to raise the awareness scott it's a great question because we have been trying to do this for a long time and we're we're really not getting as far as we would like 
you know, certainly trying to educate people to try to, you know, do CME programs, try to give lectures at annual meetings of cardiology, pulmonary, primary care societies. We've, you know, we've certainly gone the educational route and haven't made as much impact as we'd like. Certainly leveraging technology in education is something that we're trying to do more to have more interactive medical education programs electronically, and that can maybe help improve the learning a bit. So, you know, certainly, certainly that's all helpful. And, and we've tried to do that. And, you know, I don't know, maybe it's helped a little bit. It hasn't helped as much as we, we would like. So really bringing a tool closely to the, the frontline providers that they can learn about and see the impact that it has. I, you know, gosh, I am optimistic about what we can potentially do with that. Wonderful. I, I know that you must get referrals from all over your local area and you, you, I'm sure you deal with a lot of different cardiology groups. What do you do in the groups that you work with to try to specifically raise their awareness? How, how do you raise the awareness with the folks that, that uh, tend, to, tend to send you patients? Yeah, Scott, it's a great question. And it's not a one size fits all answer, to be honest with you. You know, I've been at Michigan for almost 20 years. And so I have worked with a lot of different groups and they all want something a little bit different. I have most groups, you know, they enjoy me coming in and lecturing them and, you know, educating them now and again. And, you know, as soon as they see an echo that shows something, they just want to be able to send the patient and not have to bother with it more. Um, And that's one end of the spectrum. And on the other end of the spectrum, you know, there are a handful of groups across the state that I've really spent a lot of time with and have helped develop um, a, a local pulmonary hypertension expert that really can do the whole workup, may even feel comfortable doing some of the the oral medications, not not the pumps. Um, and they have me on speed dial. You know, they know what to do most of the time. And when they're not sure, they they call me. So I think that relationship. There, there has to be a lot of different flavors of that, and it needs to be geared towards what that practice wants, what they can do, what their interest level is. I think underlying in, in all of those different scenarios, though, is the education and, and the ability of the echo tech to be able to do a quality echo, the ability of the physician to be able to read it, and then in just ensuring everybody has the educational background to understand what they're looking at. And then those that want more help you give, those that want to create their own expert within their, their group you support. I think it sounds perfect. Scott, I think that was a great summary. Are you sure you're not the KOL? <laughs> yeah, definitely not. <laughs> Are there any other areas that your passion leads you to think about when, when you're dealing with, with these patients? Well, I I do think there's one other thing I would like to talk about, and it actually goes hand in hand with your technology, and that is uh, heart failure, and particularly heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And your tool, the Corvista tool, has the ability to measure the LVEDP. And, you know, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is actually a very common cause of group two pulmonary hypertension. And I'll tell you, Scott, a lot of the referrals that I get for an elevated RVSP on echo end up being group two pulmonary hypertension from left ventricular diastolic dysfunction. And it's a disease or an entity that is growing in 
in frequency, right? Like there are the risk factors for this are metabolic syndrome risk factors, obesity, hypertension, advancing age, diabetes, and all of those diseases are becoming sadly more and more prevalent in our society. And so helping local providers think about heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and treating heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, not only with just optimization of risk factors and volume, but there's some, some emerging data about SGLT2 inhibitors in that population. I think that's a huge opportunity. And that's something that, that your technology can potentially impact as well. That, yeah, we, we definitely have our sights and, and set on trying to help those patients with, without a doubt. One of the other areas that we're really focused on, we we see women both with CAD and pulmonary hypertension as a huge opportunity to serve uh, underserviced populations. But with a point of care device, one of the other things that we really want to focus on as an organization is underserved, whether it be rural communities, and and I know Michigan has has some rural communities that that are hard to get to and patients. It, it's a bit of an effort for them to be able to get two, two and a half hours to, to a larger community setting practice. Uh, and then on the other side of the coin, there, there are plenty of urban centers that, that those patients don't get the quality of care that, that a lot of people do out in the suburbs. Can you talk to me about those two sides of the coin and, and what you see as the importance for these both groups of underserved populations? Yeah, I think it's a great question, Scott. And I, I'm going to add one thing in there, and that has to do with all the advances that we've made in virtual care. And I, I would tell you, I don't think anyone thinks there's anything good about the pandemic, you know, nothing at all. But if there's one thing that changed with medicine uh, about the pandemic that I think was good and is here to stay, that is the widespread acceptance of virtual care. And I think that that marrying some technology like point of care technology with everything that we can do with virtual care these days really can help uh, patients in both of those situations. So yes, there there are rural underserved areas of Michigan, and I, I do think that we are providing better care to them now than we used to. I think certainly a point of care test can, that raises the index of suspicion along with uh, maybe perhaps a virtual access to uh, an expert might improve diagnosis. I don't want to say everything can be done locally. Perhaps at some point the patient still needs to get to the center to get the right heart catheterization, but raising the suspicion locally and then providing some care virtually to minimize the trips, I think can can really assist those patients. And and similarly in, in inner city and the challenges there may be different. They 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 really may have to do with some of the the socioeconomic status. And this is obviously something that uh, we are all trying to do a better job with these these days. And so again, leveraging both types of technology to impair, to improve care delivery to some of those patients, uh, I think is a huge opportunity of, of, of that we have with, with technology in 2022. Well said. As we've been talking to, to some of our clinical sites and they see the point of care utility of, of the core VISTA system, 
their their thought process is a lot of the outreach that's done either by them or some of the some of their cardiologists who refer to them is the ability to have this at the patient side be able to utilize the technology have have the results pushed to them in the portal and be able to read them whether it's two two and a half hours away and allow that patient to stay at home or stay close to their home in in a critical access hospital or, or a smaller remote hospital, and then uh, only have to come to the big city if they absolutely need to, they feel like it could definitely be peace of mind for those patients. I agree. I, th- I think it's a huge opportunity. One of the things that that hopefully as, as we work with you more in the medical advisory board is to look at how we can make an impact in those inner cities and, and positively affect those socioeconomic challenges that you discussed to be able to find find these patients and raise the index of suspicion on some some disease as well because um, we all have an opportunity to make a difference in people's lives and and I'm I'm hoping we can try to maximize that. I think it's a huge opportunity, something that that is easy to do locally that can help point you in the right direction in terms of what diagnostic pathway you need to go down can, I think, bring more people to medical attention sooner. Again, it may not be that we can do everything at at the the point of care, but at least we can get started. We can figure out what needs to be done at the big, big center and try to package it all up to do in one day. And again, provide some of that follow-up care remotely as well. Absolutely. So currently, can you just so we have a better understanding, uh, can you take me through kind of what you see as a typical pathway that a patient goes through? Sure, Scott. There, there are many. I would say that patients, again, the most common symptom is shortness of breath. You know, sometimes there's a delay on the patient side. Sometimes they don't present to medical attention right away because they blame themselves for not exercising or gaining weight. So there's often a delay from symptoms to bringing someone to medical attention that is patient-driven, you know, and then often the patient sees their primary care doctor first and, you know, God bless the primary care doctors, how they keep up with everything is beyond me, right? So again, they're thinking about common causes of shortness of breath and maybe they, maybe they order a stress test or maybe they order PFTs or maybe they just try an inhaler. There's lots of different things that a primary care doc might do. They, they might try to manage that for a while and it could be six months, a year, and the patient's not better and they say go to cardiology or go to pulmonary and then more testing gets done. And then at some point, you know, perhaps someone does an echo that shows a high PA pressure and that's generally how they get into the the doors of a pulmonary hypertension center and then get the rest of the workup, including the the VQ scan to look for thromboembolic disease and the definitive diagnostic study, which is the right heart catheterization. And there's lots of different varieties of that path. But again, in general, it's, you know, it takes a year or two for most patients. Wow. I I can say I, prior to meeting you, I did not know a lot about pulmonary hypertension, but the discussions I've had with you have painted a picture so vivid. And I see these patients as really needing something to raise the index of suspicion so you can go through your process to diagnose them. And just hearing the stories that you told me, I mean, they've left a visual impact on me that I'm 
I'm really hoping that Corvista Health can be a small piece of, of helping you diagnose these patients earlier. And, and like you said, improving their quality of life and potentially even uh, increasing their life. Well, Scott, we're on the same page. I would love nothing more than to be able to see these patients at earlier stages of the disease and and offer them therapies that keep them functional and alive for a long time. Dr. McLaughlin, thank you so much for your time. Scott, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you. To learn more or listen to more episodes of The Core, please visit us at corevista.com. Please note, The Core Vista system is an investigational device limited by federal law to investigational use and is not available for commercial distribution.